Thank you so much. Hannah's never that enthusiastic about my preaching, but Eric on the video apparently is. <laughs> a question that is always great to ask is why? Now, I'm saying this as a parent of two very young boys who have, by some divine miracle, not yet reached that phase. I am told every child goes through where they just ask why about every single thing that comes up to the point where I have observed drives the parents to absolute despair. So if you're a parent who is either parenting a young child in that phase or uh, perhaps you've gone through that phase, maybe you wouldn't agree that, uh, that why is always a good question. Uh, and maybe I'll change my answer at some point. But I imagine for Jesus' listeners on the sermon, uh, sat on the mountainside as he starts to come towards the end of the, his sermon, he, they are starting to ask just that question. Hang on a minute, why? Because for the last chapter and a half, Jesus has been offering his listeners highly practical wisdom on how to live their life. He is essentially saying to them, to them, this is what you should do and how you should be living the whole of your life. And the listeners would have been at this point starting to think, Jesus, this sounds difficult. This sounds like this is going to be incredibly inconvenient for my life if I follow and mold my way around how you are saying I should. This is going to be, it's going to be costly for me. It's going to take a lot of my time. It sounds like it's going to cost me an awful lot of money and friendships. I'm going to be socially rejected if I follow your way, Jesus. I'm, I'm not going to be invited to the coolest Passover parties anymore. Jesus, why? Why should I follow your way? And maybe as we have gone through this series, you have had similar thoughts yourself. Jesus, this sounds really, really difficult to live this way. Maybe you've even tried to put into practice some of the things that we've heard and you thought, Jesus, I, I just, I don't quite know why I should be living this way. Maybe for you it's not quite that you're worried you won't get invited to the Passover parties, but that's an equivalent that you can imagine. And Jesus, it won't surprise you to hear, is a master communicator. And he knows, he knows that these sorts of questions will be going through his listeners' ears and through their mind. And so he finishes his sermon not with more of what we should do, but why we should listen to his teaching. In fact, this is so important to Jesus that essentially he finishes this sermon just by making one point. But he brings it to life over the course of 15 verses using a series of what would have been very everyday images. And to be honest, they're quite everyday images for us. He, he talks of a, a narrow path versus a wide path. He talks of a diseased tree versus a healthy tree. And then finally, maybe the one that we're all most familiar with, he talks of a house that has been built on a rock versus a house that has been built on the sand. And in repeating the same point and using various different images from slightly different angles, what Jesus is doing here is he is starting to raise the stakes of his message. He's trying to ensure that this message that his listeners have been sat there listening to for I don't know how long doesn't just go in through one ear and then straight out the other. 
but he wants his listeners to grasp why. Why is this message so important in order to provoke them to action, to live this life that he has laid out for them? And that is exactly what we're going to see this morning as we look briefly at each of these images. And so today's message is called The Path to Life. And we're going to begin by looking at the first image in Matthew chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, do turn Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. But if you don't, behind me on the screens, the words will appear. You can read along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And here Jesus, he talks of this very simple image, just of a a narrow gate versus a wide gate. And in verse 14, you might have picked picked up on it, he is bringing a reminder to his listeners in this sermon of exactly why they should be listening to all of the things that he he has said that they should live out. Because this narrow path that he speaks of in verse 14 leads to life. As he begins to draw his sermon to an end, he is returning to where he began his sermon. He's not saying, look, you just need to listen to what I've got to say because this is just what God says, you need to, how to live your life. He's just, this, is, this is his way, you just need to get on board with it. Now he's saying, if you can live out, if you can put into practice my way, my teaching, it will lead you, it is the path to life itself. And this has been the tone of his whole message. You might remember from uh, the very beginning, if you were tracking along from, from then, those series of blessed are statements that begin the series, that the invitational nature of this sermon to live the blessed or blessed life. You might remember that Greek word that is so hard for us to just translate from, from then until now, but it's essentially Jesus speaking of true human flourishing. If we follow him, we will have this, this blessed, abundant life. It's his answer to the question that everybody back then was asking, and to be honest, we still ask today, how can I have the fullest possible life? And Jesus says, this, this way of living, this is it with me, in what he calls his kingdom, this new, unseen, heavenly realm that is just breaking out on the earth as he steps into the scene. And he's saying, you can enter into this kingdom now. You can come, you can come and live in it, live my way, and you will have the best life you could possibly hope for. But he also says something here that then kind of seems to contradict all of that. He says it's a narrow path. He says the best life that we could hope for, this offer of the fullness of life, is not easy. Just the beginning of verse 14 again. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. My translation has it as hard, 
you, yours might have some other word there. The, the Greek word, it means kind of it's compressed, it's squeezed, it's, it's pressured to live this life. What Jesus is saying here is that the flourishing, abundant life is also the hard life. And this is one of those moments where we can catch some of the tone of voice of Jesus. Because he knows. He knows that he is offering us the greatest gift. He knows that this is the best news that we could ever hope to receive. That someone has come and says, I have the way to life itself. And yet he also knows and understands this is a hard gift for us to receive. He's saying, I know my teaching is hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. I know it confronts you and even offends you. I know that you struggle to put it into practice. But he's saying, look, just, just keep going because it leads to life. I think, I mean, I was so encouraged by Lee's picture in the worship time of just the difficulty and the challenges. I think we need to hear these words today direct from Jesus' mouth. Him saying, following me is hard. I'm sure there are many sat here today. I'm sure there are plenty tuning in online today where this last year, 2020, into 21, the 14 months or so that we've been in lockdown have been, you have had to fight to follow Jesus in some of that time. You have had to struggle to keep going after him. It has maybe been some of the hardest months of your discipleship journey so far. Church, online, unable to worship with everybody, the lack of community, the disruption to your routine, and of course, I'm sure for so many, genuine loss over this last period. Jesus knows it's a hard path following him. He'd want us to hear again, it does lead to life. It is worth following. The green shoots, as Lee said, they are coming and they are starting to, to flower and come into being at different points in our life. Keep going, he says, don't turn away, follow me. And it is here in this close to the sermon that Jesus really does start to raise the stakes on following him. Because his appeal to follow him is not just found in where it will lead us to, but here for the first time he starts to emphasize just what it is that it will lead us away from. Because he says, again, quite simple image, the alternative is you can go on a wide path, it will be much, much easier to walk along. But verse 13, it leads to destruction. And this is exactly what he then repeats in the other two images that follow. The image of a tree, he says, there's a healthy tree and there's a diseased tree. The diseased tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then of the two houses, the one on the rock and the one on the sand, he says the house that has been built on the sand, it fell. And great was the fall of it. He's using powerful images. Powerful images that are easy for us to conjure up in our mind and see the severity of it. And he's repeating it to get the full attention of his listeners. He's saying the matter at hand here, it's not just 
Are you going to flourish? Are you going to have an abundant life? Are things going to go well for you over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, however long we might be on the earth? He's saying, no, no, here, there is a stark choice to be made in how you live your life. Either you will know flourishing and abundance for eternity, or you will take the path that Jesus' words lead to destruction. Hannah and I hadn't yet moved to Manchester um, when we, uh, when the, the bombing happened at the Manchester Arena uh, just a few years ago. But we did know that we were going to be moving here to plant a church from Nottingham. And so when we heard the news, it struck an emotional chord because we knew we were coming to the city to, to plant a church. And so we heard the news, and uh, as you do, you, you pick up your phone, you, you, you see the headlines, you see the breaking news thing as, as, it, the, as news starts to come in. And quite frankly, it was quite hard, I'm sure for everybody here, hard to believe that this was happening. Hard to believe it was happening until we then turn the TV on. And you see the images from outside the arena. And suddenly it is, it's all too real and no longer quite so hard to believe as you see the real human trauma and distress on that night from outside the, the arena. And it all became real. And for both Hannah and I at that point, because we knew this was the city we were going to move to, we, we both experienced this thing of, we, we just want to be there. We just want to go. We're in Nottingham, but um, we just want to go and be outside the arena now, not because we think we can be of any help or any use whatsoever that we would be able to actually do anything, but we just wanted to do something. And in, in that case, we just had to divert all of that activation energy to just praying for the situation, praying for Manchester, praying for the people. It didn't really make much sense for us to go, but I'm sure you can point to moments in your life or things that you've seen. Powerful imagery has the ability to make things real in a way they're not when you just know the facts. And they also lead us to action. And that is exactly what it is that Jesus is doing here. He is using this vivid and evocative imagery time and time again, not because he's trying to frighten his disciples or his listeners and those that might want to enter into the kingdom. He's not just trying to use scare tactics of, well, come on, you better come in, otherwise this is going to happen to you. What Jesus is trying to do here is he is trying to provoke urgency in his listeners. He wants them to see what is coming and to take action now. Because Jesus knows that on some level, all of us struggle to believe that eternity is actually going to happen that it is coming, and that forever is right around the corner. We struggle to really get our heads around that concept, and so it's really easy for us to just ignore it and just live for today, or if we're really mature, tomorrow. And so what he does here is he uses these shocking images of destruction and, and, and of fire and of a house falling flat, and great was the fall of it to bring that future reality of this is coming right into the presence, trying to make the ignorable unignorable for his listeners and get it right up in their face so that they would take it seriously. He's saying you could lead 
an easier, more comfortable life than following my way. But it will lead to destruction, he says. The, spiritual, uh, the, the writer on spiritual formation, Dallas Willard, puts it like this. He says, the cost of discipleship might be high, but the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. And it's in the two images that follow where Jesus then starts to bring into focus what does this life of discipleship actually look like in verses 15 through to 27. We have these images, as I've mentioned before, two trees, a healthy tree and a diseased tree and a house that is built on sand and a house that is built on rock. And you might have a song from your childhood going through your head now, or if you're a parent of a young children, you've got a, a song from now going through your head that you only just got out of your head. What is fascinating about both of these images that Jesus uses right towards the end of his sermon are that from the outside looking in, everything appears to be good in both sets of images. Of the tree, he says, twice in verses 16 and in verse 20, you will recognize these trees. So you'll be able to discern which is healthy and which is diseased by their fruits, he says. So he's saying the healthy tree over time will bring forth good and healthy fruit, but the diseased tree over time will bring forth rotten fruit. So what he's saying here is that the health of the tree is not immediately discernible. You can't just look at it and, and work out. It's not like the diseased tree just has some kind of gnarly branches that makes it look super ugly, and hey, look, the healthy tree just got these resplendent leaves. You'll immediately be able to spot the difference. No. The health of the tree... Jesus says, and, and so the health of the disciple that he is talking about is based on something internal, something that lies deep within the tree. It is only then over time that that which is internal comes out in the form of the fruit that is within. And we see this even more starkly in the final image that Jesus uses of the houses. Let's read from verse 24. Everyone then, who hears these, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The contrast here being the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand. Again, the houses themselves don't look any different from the outside. Apart from one is on the beach. I mean, who doesn't want the beach house? I know which one I would be picking out of the two of these if I could just look at them. But of course, what we see here, the point of difference of these two houses is the foundation. The point of difference of these houses is on the unseen level, the hidden level, 
maybe even more importantly in this image, the starting point of the house. That which then everything that is seen is built upon and based on. The fate of the house, and so again, the fate of the disciple, it's not based on what we can see from outside. You can't tell from just looking at the house itself, is it going to fall or is it going to stand? But it's entirely based on that which lies at its very deepest level, that which is unseen. And this is a note that Jesus has been striking over and over again throughout the whole sermon. Back in chapter 5, the verse that sets up the whole sermon and very much from which the whole of the teaching section flows from and is basically an unpacking of is verse 20 in chapter 5. I won't read the whole thing, but he says, I want from you righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, in those days, the Pharisees and the scribes were the holy people. They were considered to be the ones who got righteousness right. And so when the listeners heard, you've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes, it sounds to them and probably sounds to us like what Jesus is saying is, right, they pray for three hours a day. I want four from you. They, pray, they read through the Bible in a year. You've got to do it in a month. That's what it sounds like. But what Jesus was doing here is he is redefining what it is that God is looking for in his disciples, what faithfulness, what righteousness looks like. He says of this same group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts, that which is at the very deepest level of them, is far from me, is what these, Jesus says of these people. They seem to do the right things from the outside, they look great. But internally, they're deficient. They look so good, but their righteousness is entirely focused on the external outputs. This would have been absolutely shocking for the original listeners on that mountainside as they listened to this. Because what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees and the scribes, the righteous ones, the holy ones, they are the diseased tree. They are the house that stands on the sand and is about to suffer a great fall. They look perfect. Beach house. But at the unseen, at the hidden level, the level of the heart. It's not where your heart is. Your heart pointing at my belly button. They're lacking. Jesus is using these images that have sharp distinctions, the narrow path or the wide path, the diseased tree, the healthy tree, the house on the sand or the house on the rock to hone right in on what it is that he is looking for in his disciples. He's saying the way of the kingdom is about pursuing inner devotion over outer performance. That a life following Jesus is not just focused on, on just our external outputs. It's not just about doing the right Christian things. Am I going to church enough? Am I keeping up to date and on track with my Bible in a year reading plan? Am I raising my hands at the right point in worship each week? He's saying it's far much more. 
the goal and the, uh, the life goal of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus, is to pursue deep inner life of devotion to him and obedience to him. He says the wise man builds his house upon a rock. Wisdom is taking time and hard work to work on the health of that which is hidden, that which is inner, that which is unseen. Working on the health of our hearts. But he says the fool, they pay no attention to that. We've seen this throughout the sermon, that obedience measured not just in, in what you do and the externals. It's not just about, hey, have you murdered somebody or have you cheated on your wife? No, Jesus comes and, and redefines it and says, no, no, the obedience and righteousness now is about, are you experiencing anger? Are you having lustful thoughts? Are you judging other people? We see it as well in the spiritual disciplines. He's not just asking the question, hey, look, are you praying? Are you giving? Are you fasting? Not just about doing these things for the sake of doing them as a Christian box-ticking exercise. He's saying, are these acts of devotion to your Father in heaven? This is what they should be. We talk a lot about being a family following Jesus. We talked a lot about it in just the few short years that we've existed as, as a church together. This is what it looks like to really and truly follow Jesus. It's not just about us doing our Sunday meetings together and being able to gather as we are today. It's not just about us forming deep relationships and walking through life together. It's not even about us getting out on the streets when we can again and handing out flyers and telling people about Jesus and looking to proclaim the gospel, although it very much is all of those things. But where it starts, it's first and foremost about being a people who at the deepest level, we are being shaped and formed by Jesus. And if this is the life that we want, if this is how we want to live and this is who we want to be, Jesus offers us stunning clarity on how we can become it. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. His disciples, he say, hear and they from the start of the, 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 the end, starting in verse 12, which we looked at last week, and right through to the end of the sermon, this verb that Jesus is here rendered as does, but has many different forms throughout this close, comes up ten times in this passage. Jesus is ending his sermon with a call to action. He's saying it is not enough to just hear his words. He says in, in verse 26, 27, something like that. I can't see where it is now. 26, the fool hears his words but doesn't do them. It's not enough to hear. We need to do. How good are you at hearing a sermon and thinking, man, that was great. I was so convicted by that sermon. I, I actually felt God speaking to me as the preacher was preaching. I knew God was in the room. 
I'm going to do nothing about it. I feel like I am a world champion at that. Just so easy. I find it so easy to hear and to be impressed and to take in the information. And then sometimes I'm so poor at doing. We live in this information age. We know it. We know we've just got so much information coming to us at all times. I think there's a danger if we're not careful. Our Christian life and our discipleship could become little more than just believing in a certain doctrine, agreeing perhaps with a set of ethics, and just steadily over time getting smarter and smarter and smarter about the Bible. Which again, all of those things are wonderful and great, but what Jesus is emphasizing here is that our following him must involve intentional action. Jesus here is just double underlining, circling, highlighting. We cannot be passive in our own sanctification and our own discipleship. Saying, do not make the mistake that just knowledge on its own is enough and that growth in God as a result will just happen. Don't fall into the trap. We cannot, it just will not do for us to think, maybe if I listen to enough sermons on prayer, suddenly I'll reach the tipping point and just it'll click and bang, and my prayer life will just be absolutely world-class. He's saying, don't just wait for that magical day where you wake up and think, I am going to start fasting now. No one has ever thought that. That has happened to literally nobody. He says, just start praying, start fasting. If we identify anger in our hearts, we don't just think, oh, I'm a bit angry. That'll probably go. No, he says, take steps to deal with it. Confess it. Repent of it. Ask for forgiveness. Confess it to somebody else. Be rigorous. Be ruthless in trying to drive it out. Keep coming to God saying, will you help me? I don't want to put up with this. You say I don't have to be angry. I'm going to take you at your word. Would you help set me free from this? The New Testament scholar R.T. France, he's one of the most respected scholars on the whole book of Matthew, and he just puts it like this. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but to be obeyed. Put simply, this teaching from Jesus Christ of Nazareth demands a response of us. We have to do something about it. And in a moment, I'm going to make an opportunity. If you feel like, actually, no, I, I don't think I have ever made a conscious choice to follow Jesus. I've never made a decision of I want to enter into his kingdom, live his way that leads to life. Today, I'm going to make an opportunity for you to respond. We would love to help you take your first step towards following him and receiving the life that only he can offer. And for the rest of us this morning, I think there is a moment for us to say to God once again, I want to submit to you. This is the life I want to live. I want to actually live a life of action in following Jesus. I don't just want to be a hearer of the word. I want to be a doer. I want to increasingly become the disciple that Jesus really wants me to be. And so I'll make a bit of space for us to respond to that in a second. This message demands a response because the stakes are so high. And here at the end, this final section of the Sermon on the Mount, for the very first time in Matthew's Gospel, 
we just start to see truly what the shape of this kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into really is. We start to get a bit of a sense of what this good news is really about. Because we see that this kingdom, it's not just a place of profound blessing and a place of abundance and fullness of life. It's not even just a place where perfect and pure community and relationship happens. Here we see that this is a kingdom of salvation. This is a kingdom with Jesus Christ as its saviour king. If Jesus had not stepped foot onto this earth, if he had not then stood on this mountainside or sat on this mountainside, as Matt pointed out last week, and proclaimed this message, there would have just been one path for us all to follow. It would have been wide. It would have felt easy. But for each of us, it would have led to destruction. Without exception, all of us would have been those diseased trees that were thrown into the fire. All of us dramatically like houses falling down flat. But he did come. He came to save us. He came to rescue us, to make a different path, to open up the doors of his kingdom that we might be able to walk in, to set us on the path that leads to life. It is a narrow path. It is a hard path. It is a costly path. But all of the other alternatives, the cost, the true cost, is so much higher. He calls on us to be a people who hear these words of his and we do them. Let's not just admire the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Let's be a people who obey them. We're going to sing one final song now, so invite the band to come up. And as I said, we're going to have a moment. We're going to sing a, a song, and then I will come up and just make an opportunity for us to respond. I'm going to make an opportunity for those who haven't before said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, and an opportunity for all of us to submit before God, to take even some kind of physical response, um, just giving you a bit of warning, might, whatever works for you. I know we're all different, but you might think about, I, I'm going to kneel down where I am. Um, I'm going to maybe put my hands in the air as a sign of submission. There'll be an opportunity for you to do something like that when I come back. So just want to encourage you maybe now just to, to close your eyes. Looks like the band are more or less ready, but just to start thinking about, okay, what does this mean for me? As this sermon series comes to a close, I've been challenged, I've been confronted by a few things. We come before you now, God. We want to be a people who, who respond, who hear the urgency in your words, and we do something about them. So let's stand if we're able to. And the band are going to lead us in this final song and this is just a chance for us in the room whether you're watching online to just come before God and just ready ourselves for, okay, I want to respond in some way to this